the In Conversation podcast series with author Nigel Beckles. Welcome to the podcast. podcast. Please like the podcast, podcast. and subscribe podcast. to this channel. Podcast. Thank you. The very best way to promote your podcasts. Podpage makes it easy to create a podcast website with just a few clicks. Every page is optimized to be found on Google and it stays up to date forever. For more information visit podpage.com. The future of podcast promotion. Have you experienced several failed relationships or been through a divorce? How can you avoid making the same mistakes again? How to avoid making the big relationship mistakes is out now. Hi, my name is Nigel Beckles. My new book is packed with practical and common sense strategies that you can use to make better relationship choices. Now you can discover the dangerous myths about love. If your relationship expectations are realistic, why you could be falling in love for all the wrong reasons. How to avoid making the big relationship mistakes. It's a book that could change your life. Available from Amazon.co.uk. Kindle version also available. Get ready for takeoff. Welcome back to my In Conversation podcast series. My guest for this episode was wrongfully convicted of a horrific rape and murder when he was just 17 years old. He has since created a foundation seeking justice for other innocent people. American Jeffrey Deskovic. Hi Jeffrey, welcome to my podcast series. How are you? I'm great, thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. So where do you live at the moment? I live in the Throgsneck section of the of the Bronx, which is a borough of New York City, which um, is a state in the United States. So did you grow up in that area? I did not. I grew up in the city of Peekskill, which is in Westchester County, New York, which was the suburbs. So what was your childhood like? I didn't think of it this way then, but I, I kind of lived a double life growing up. So there was my life in school, my life after school. So my life after school uh, was great. So there were a lot of kids that lived in the apartment complex that I grew up in and in the surrounding areas. And I was kind of like the life of the party in a sense, like whatever I would suggest would generally be what we would do. If we're going to ride bikes, play Monopoly, do video games, we're going to swim, basketball. We had a ton of games we made up. We we even played tackle football with no pads on, on the grass like kids do, you know, but that really was my life after school. My life in school was different there. The kids were... A little bit older than I was. I skipped a grade really early on and it kind of caught up with me in high school. So I really wasn't into drinking and party and playing organized sports. So as a result of that, I was kind of like quiet into myself and I was kind of more on the fringes of the society in school. Well, during January 1991, you were convicted of various crimes. What were they? It was a murder and rape of a uh, high school classmate. She was in two of my classes, a freshman, one is a sophomore. I knew her name. She knew mine. That was really the extent of it. We were not even really on a high buy basis. And how old were you when you were convicted? 17. I was arrested when I was 16. I turned 17 before the trial started and uh, I was convicted when I was 17. Wow, that's really young. Now, I understand you confessed to the murder. What were the circumstances of that happening? So to understand that, let me explain the six weeks run up to that. So I had a series of interaction with the police in which they would start out talking to me like I'm a suspect. And then when they would push too hard and I'd become frightened and I'd want to get away from them. 
then they would switch it up. And then Jeff is this junior detective helper theme was pushed. They would say things like the kids won't talk freely around us, but they will around you. Let us know if you hear anything. Stop in from time to time. They would congratulate. They would ask me opinion questions and congratulate me that my opinion was correct. Before I was a teenager, I wanted to become a, a police officer that grew up. So because of that, that along my age, 16, was how they were able to fool me. Beyond that, I came from a single parent household. My father was never involved in my life in any aspect. And that intersected with the good cop, bad cop technique in which one officer was pretending to be my friend. I began to look up to him as a father figure. Eventually, they got me to agree to take a polygraph test by telling me they had some new information in the file and they wanted to share that with me and that would allow me to be more helpful to them. But first, I'd have to take and pass the polygraph. So the next day, rather than report to school, I went to the police station for the test. Because it was a school day, my mother and grandmother thought that I was in school, had no idea anything was wrong, so they did not call around looking for me. They drove me from Peekskill, which is in Westchester County. They drove me 40 minutes away by car to the town of Brewster, which was in Putnam County. So which meant that I was no longer able to leave on my own. I was totally dependent upon the police. There were three officers who came with me from Peekskill, but then there was also the Putnam County Sheriff's investigator, Daniel Stevens, who was dressed like a civilian. He was pretending not to be a police officer. I didn't have an attorney present. They didn't give me anything to eat the entire time I was there. He gave me a four-page brochure, which explained how the polygraph worked. But then it had a lot of big words in it that I didn't understand. But I thought that since I was there to help the police, what did it matter? Let's just get on with it. From there, they put me in a small room, and he gave me countless cups of coffee to get me nervous. And then he attached me to a polygraph machine. And then he launched into his third-degree tactics. So he invaded my personal space. He raised his voice at me. He kept asking me the same questions over and over again. And he kept that up for six and a half to seven hours. Towards the end, he said, what do you mean you didn't do it? You just told me through the test result that you did. We just want you to verbally confirm it. And that really shot my fear through the roof. And at that point, the officer who had been pretending to be my friend, he came in the room and told me that the other officers were going to harm me, but that he had been holding them off but could not do so indefinitely, that I had to help myself. Then he added, look, just tell them what they want to hear. You can go home afterwards. You're not going to be arrested. Being young, naive, frightened, 16 years old, not thinking about the long term, just being concerned my safety in the moment. I was in fear of my life. The fact that I didn't know where I was, that nobody else knew where I was either, loomed very large in my mind. I was overwhelmed psychologically and emotionally. And then there was this push-pull dynamic, uh, the possibility of harm, this false life preserver. And so I decided to make up a story based on the information that they had given me in the course of the interrogation that day and in the six weeks run up to it. By the time everything was all done, I had collapsed onto the floor in a fetal position, crying uncontrollably. Obviously, I was arrested. I was charged with a murder and rape. So how long were you sentenced for? My sentence was 15 to life, which meant that I had to do 15 years minimally, uh, which I... That's an adult sentence, by the way, and I was sent to a men's maximum security prison. So the 15 in life means you have to do 15 years minimum, then you go to the parole board, and it's up to them to decide when you're going to be paroled. The life part of it means that there was never going to be a point in time where they were legally obligated to release me. So they theoretically could have kept denying me parole every two years, forever. So what were your interests and activities while you were in prison? I was determined not to waste my time. 
So everything I did had some kind was oriented towards some kind of potential benefit for the future. So I got the GED. I learned to type. I took a class on general business and computer repair, both of which pertain to usage of the computer in the workforce setting. I got an associate's degree in liberal arts. I completed a year towards the bachelor's degree before funding was cut for college education for prisoners. I completed other trades like food service and plumbing. I became qualified as a painter's helper. I took a course on how adults learned, and I worked as a teacher's aide working with other prisoners who were in pursuit of their GED and uh, adult basic education. But I also went to the law library a lot. I learned the law. I used to read cases about other people who were exonerated just for inspiration, and I would study who helped them and what route did they take. Uh, from 1998 forward, I read three or four nonfiction books uh, a week. Uh, I learned how to play chess. I accumulated a uh, mini chess library, so I began to play chess really seriously. And I still enjoy that now because it's it's a thinking person's game. In order to win the game, you have to see a little bit further ahead than what your opponent does. I did that while I was in prison. But I also played a lot of basketball. I mentioned I played chess. I played ping pong as well. But when I did those three things, though, I engaged in this elaborate delusion where I would pretend like I was a professional player and so were the others. But it really wasn't like kids just fooling around in a playground. This was more on the level that I needed to get out of the prison for a couple of hours. And that was the fantasy that I created in my mind in order to do that. Similarly, I used to collect pictures of nature scenes. There was a section on the prison cell wall where you were allowed to hang up pictures and I would hang up nature scene pictures and I would kind of travel there mentally and just imagine what it would uh, what it would be like to be there. Well, during January 2006, an organization in America called the Innocence Project began working on your case. So how did they become involved? I had seven appeals, which I lost. That took up 11 years. And once your appeals are finished, you no longer have a, an attorney that's appointed by the state because your appeals are over. You're not litigating anymore. The only way back into court at that point was if you can find some previously unknown evidence of innocence, which probably would have resulted in a different verdict. Because I didn't have any money to hire an attorney or an investigator to find any new evidence, I instead embarked upon a letter writing campaign. So I did that for four years looking for someone to help me, both uh, directly or even indirectly. So if I could come up with an action that somebody in a, that was not in a legal field could do, which could set in motion a chain of events that ultimately culminated into my getting the substantive legal and investigative help that I needed, then I wrote the letter. I went to the parole board where because I maintained my innocence, rather than express remorse and take responsibility, I was denied parole. They told me to appear in front of them for two more years. So that was the letter writing campaign. And one of those letters, which I wrote to a book author, uh, Tecla Miller, and care of the Biddle Publishing House, somebody there instead sent that letter to Claudia Whitman, who was an investigator, to explain to me that because she lived in Maine and also in Colorado, two far off states in the U.S., that she couldn't help directly, but that she was willing to try to help me with the networking. And so she suggested I write the Innocence Project again, and she also lobbied them to take the case, and she got other respected legal professionals to lobby them. And then I also got lucky that Maggie Taylor, who's now an attorney, she was working at the Innocence Project at the time in their intake department. And she presented my case three times. The lawyers there twice didn't want 
to take my case, but she kept coming up with new theories and how DNA could be used to still be something new. And she got them to agree to take my case. So that's how I got their representation. And that was the first of three keys that resulted in my obtaining my freedom. So how did DNA evidence get introduced to your case? Well, it originally did before the trial. There was semen found in the victim. They compared that to me and it didn't match me, but I was uh, convicted anyway. But fast forwarding, the DNA was used a second time because the DNA database was created, which contained profiles of people who had committed violent crimes. And so the innocence, so the innocence, getting the innocence project was the first key. The second key was the district attorney who previously had been blocking. This is Janine Pirro, who has this commentary on TV shows. So Pirro blocked me several times from getting further DNA testing through this databank. So she left office and her successor allowed me to have it. So that was two of the three keys. And the third key is that they took the crime scene DNA evidence, which already didn't match me, and they entered it into the databank and it matched the actual perpetrator whose DNA was only in the databank because left free while I was doing time for his crime. He killed a second victim three and a half years later, who was a school teacher and had two children. So on September 22nd, 2006, my conviction was overturned and I was released. I reported back to court November 2nd, 2006, at which point all the charges against me were dismissed on actual innocence grounds. And the actual perpetrator, you know, confronted with a DNA that matched him, he confessed he was the person who committed the crime. So he was arrested and uh, convicted and pled guilty and was sentenced for it. So what were your thoughts and feelings when you found out that the DNA evidence actually matched somebody else. I realized what that meant, which was that him being left free, well, what happened to me, in effect, cost another person her life. So that, that kind of made things worse for me in my, in my mind. Also, he got caught for a second murder. There was a 12 and a half year time span where we both were in prison at the same time. We weren't in the same facility but we were both in the general New York State prison system. And since he, you know, we had, you know, he had gotten caught for killing a second person, he, you know, he should have come forward and said something that, you know, he committed the other crime, which could have resulted in my being free a lot sooner. I did feel that. That did bother me quite a bit. So how long did you actually serve in prison? I actually served 16 years because I did the 15 year minimum. I maintaining my innocence at the parole board rather than expressing remorse and taking responsibility. So as a result of that, they decided to deny me parole. So that resulted in my doing an additional year. So altogether, I did 16 years. In terms of how it felt when I was released, well, it really, it felt, it felt surreal. I mean, my first words at the press conference actually were, is this really happening? It's just occurred to me, actually, if you were convicted at 17 and you served 16 years, that means you spent half of your life in prison. Yes. Yeah, you're right. It's true. That's true. And I've been home for 14 years now. But, you know, if I look back at the last 30 years, I spent more of it in prison than I did out of prison. And what was the first thing that you did, Jeffrey, when you were released? Well, there was the press conference and then there was a luncheon after that. I had my first meal as a free person. I had mussels with prad diablo sauce. I had a little side of big ziti and some Neapolitan ice cream. From there, I went to my aunt's house. It was in a neighboring county. And I'd love to tell you, Nigel, that we had this huge party that lasted a crack of dawn. But 
the truth is that by then, all of my friends, I lost all of my friends except two when I was uh, arrested. And, you know, one of the two came to see me once and that was it. And the other person came to see me, maintain touch with me for five years and then he left. But I lost, by that point, I had lost all my friends and the overwhelming majority of my extended family had never come to see me. And even the few that did, it was sporadic visitation. So by that point, even the people that I knew really were strangers to me because they really had minimally come to see me. And whenever they did come to see me, I, I was just obsessed with trying to get out of prison and what's the next move and you know what could they do to facilitate that and what could they look up and what phone call could they make. So the highlights, I, mean, I just sat around a table and a couple of other people from the extended family that had not been able to come to court, they came over and Everybody just sat around and had coffee and were talking. And I just remember just sitting there, just feeling estranged and feeling like I'm in a strange environment. I'm unable to relate to anybody. And so the highlights of that really were I sat outside in the dark for a little while. I wanted to do that for 16 years. So in the prison, as soon as it gets a little bit dark, they close the yard. So you have to go inside. So I got to sit outside for a little while in the dark and and I took a bath for the first time in 16 years. Those were really my highlights. So when was your conviction officially overturned and dismissed? Well, it was a two-step process for me. Sometimes it's a one-step process. You're, you're correct. I think that's what's causing a little bit of confusion there. My conviction was overturned September 22nd on, in 2006, but the case was not dismissed. It was dismissed on November 2nd, 2006, so approximately six weeks later. You know, so the district attorney's office, you know, had not wanted to dismiss it. They wanted to run some additional confirmatory tests and, you know, finalize their decision that they were going to agree to the exoneration rather than retrying me. Well, I understand you received around $13.7 million in settlement for wrongful conviction, plus in 2014, a further $41 million, a civil rights lawsuit. How did you feel when your case was settled financially? So I was able to bring a compensation case in, in New York State, and, and I did that. And I was also able to file a called a civil rights lawsuit, a 1983 case. And so the theory in a state lawsuit is what's the state secondary responsibility and what happened. And the federal civil rights, and the only thing they're looking at is whether you're wrongfully in prison. In the federal civil rights lawsuit, you're suing the municipalities or entities that the wrongdoers directly worked for. And there... It's not simply whether you're wrongfully imprisoned or not. It has to do with also whether the conviction was caused by a malicious violation of a constitutional right. So I had four defendants that I uh, legal aid society because they performed efficient representation and they settled with me. Westchester County, because uh, they had their medical examiner committed fraud. So they settled. The city of Peekskill settled with me as well. And then I went to trial with Putnam County. So I settled a New York State lawsuit that was $1.85 million. The Westchester County was, uh, this is what they paid, not what I got, by the way. Just you have to pay the expenses and you have to give the lawyers a third. Okay, so this is what I say, the difference between paid and received, just so everyone's clear on that. So the Westchester County paid $6.5 million for their fraud of their medical examiner. Uh, Legal aid, by terms of settlement, I was not allowed to disclose Peekskill was uh, $5.3 million, and I went to trial with Putnam County. So the jury didn't realize that I had a deal in place with Putnam County in which they wanted an assurance that they would not have to pay over $10 million in 
they wanted that ceiling. And so I gave them the ceiling in exchange for a floor. The floor was $6 million. So the jury didn't know that. And hence the verdict for the $41,161,000. I, I wish I received that. Don't get me wrong, Nigel. I would love to get, anybody would love to get $41 million, okay? But they paid $10 million, not the $41 million. And again, all of that, you had to pay expenses and a third. So in reality, you keep 55 to 60% of that. So I guess maybe to sum up, am I happy with how the litigation turned out? Yeah, I, I, I am. I was financially compensated. I mean, no amount of money could ever, uh, we're talking, I didn't graduate high school. I didn't go to the prom. I missed births, deaths, weddings, rites of passage. I didn't finish my education at a more traditional age. I wasn't on my way in a career. I didn't, was not on my way to possible financial freedom. I certainly didn't have a family. And really the years I was incarcerated from age 17 to 32, in terms of the rites of passage, I mean, I, I, I had, when I was released, I had to get a driver's license, never had a license before, never lived alone before, never went shopping before, never wrote a check, never had to balance a budget. And the psychological after effects and the stigma of having been in prison wrongfully, but still having been there, you know, no amount of money is really worth it. But that having been said, I lived five years without compensation. And it was very, very difficult. So the financial compensation certainly compensates some for the pain and suffering. And I have financial stability and there's a mental strain that's lifted from me from that. And I've really been able to rebuild my life in a way that I couldn't without it. You know, got a bachelor's degree. I got a scholarship from Mercy College when I was released and I got the master's degree. So I, from John Jay College of Criminal Justice. So I used a small portion of the money to pay for the master's degree. I became an attorney. So I used some, I used some of the compensation to cover law school tuition. And I did use some of it to start the Jeffrey Deskwit Foundation for Justice. So I guess the biggest thing that I'm happy about as far as the compensation is that I'm not struggling anymore financially. I like the choices and freedom that, you know, the money brings me. I, I don't spend any of it. I only spend the dividends and interest that it earns because I know what it is not to have anything. I never want to go back into that uh, that position. But it allows me to spend 50 to 60 hours a week just doing advocacy work. And, you know, I just do it as a labor of love. I don't get paid for it. And when I do get honorariums from speaking, I have it donated to the foundation. So I wouldn't be able to do that if I was just chasing a check around. So your organization is actually a foundation? It is. It's called the Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation for Justice. It's a 501c3 nonprofit. My understanding is you might refer to it as an NGO, non-governmental organization. And we have the mission of freeing wrongfully convicted people and pursuing policy changes aimed at preventing that in the first place. So we have been able to free 11 people. We've helped pass three laws aimed at preventing wrongful conviction. Foundation is part of a bigger coal, a national coalition called It Could Happen to You, which I'm an advisory board member of. And we, we have been able to pass an additional five laws that way. And we're, we currently have 10 active cases and we're pursuing policy changes in New York, Pennsylvania, and California. And I'm active in all three of those chapters. Well, Jeffrey, I have to commend you for your work. That means a lot, Nigel. I do appreciate that. One of my, my dreams here in connection with uh, the nonprofit organization is I would ultimately like to have a chapter in, in each state and in each country because I really see wrongful conviction as a worldwide issue, not American issue. And 
countries where we don't see, we don't hear about wrongful conviction is because nobody's working on them and nobody is getting exonerated or very few. It's not because the wrongful convictions aren't happening. So we will expand as public support allows us to do that. We do have a crowdfunding site on the Patreon website, which is for people who are willing to be recurring monthly donors. You know, what if 100,000 people were willing to sacrifice three to five dollars a month? to free wrongfully convicted people. You know, imagine how many additional innocent people we could help and the policy changes and we're always looking for small donors, large donors in the middle, places that do corporate philanthropy as well. Uh, so we're always looking to do that and find people that have higher profile than I do. That's really my biggest challenge is that I need third parties who can function as connectors to people. My own network is people really of modest means for the most part, you know, but because I was in prison for... 16 years rather than rising in the ranks of business, you know, so I don't have that same network. So I need other people that can connect me to people in their network that the cause possibly made appeal to. And it's a soft sell. Here's who I am. Here's my body of work. Here's what the organization has done. Here's where we're trying to go. Is this something that appeals to you or it's not? You know, I, I just would be grateful just to be in those conversations. So I definitely need people who can help me to make those uh, connections. I mean, that's really been the toughest aspect of everything. So, uh, Jeffrey, how can people contact you? Website, www.deskovic.org, D-E-S-K-O-V-I-C. There's a uh, web form that people can email me through. And I'm also on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. So people can catch up with me that way and message me through all of those mediums as well. Definitely check out the documentary called Conviction, which is about my advocacy work and the life post-exoneration. It's available on Amazon Prime. It, uh, it's been accepted into 12 film festivals and it's won three awards. Best Cinematography, Best Documentary, and Award of Distinction. Jeffrey in New York, USA, thank you very much for your time. Much appreciated. Thank you very much for yours as well. Thank you for listening. Please like, subscribe, and share another In Conversation podcast coming soon. Music.